now call forward Brother David Wisniewski to bring us the necessary words of exhortation. Brother David. Well, good morning, my dear brothers and sisters and young people in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a beautiful morning to be gathered together around God's word, around this table of remembrance that we come together to remember our Lord Jesus Christ and what our Father and his Son did for us. And we come together then to be exhorted from God's word. And this morning we'll draw our words of exhortation from Paul's exhortation to the Ecclesia at Thessalonica. We've been reading over the past few days of Paul's letter to this Ecclesia. I thought a, a little introduction to the context of that city and that Ecclesia might be helpful as we prepare our minds for the remembrance of our Lord Jesus Christ's sacrifice. The city was a prominent Roman city. It was a capital of a Roman province. It was one that had preeminence in the empire. And it sat on a harbor on the Mediterranean Ocean and was also on a major trade route of that time. So not only was it a prominent city in the Roman Empire, but it was also a prosperous city. And within that city, brothers and sisters, there were a group of believers, a group of believers like you and like me. They were a group of believers that evidently were suffering persecution at the hands of Jewish antagonists. Those same antagonists that had followed Paul from city to city to combat his spreading of the gospel in so many cities. And we see this if we open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 14. Paul says to the brethren there, For ye, brethren, became followers of the ecclesias of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye have also suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. And so in Thessalonica, the Jews that had followed Paul into that city, we read in Acts chapter 17, had roused up the local people against the believers of Christ. And so if we turn over a page to chapter 3 and verse 4, we read, For verily when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and ye know. And so those uprisings that were spurred up in Acts chapter 17 against the ecclesia of God in Thessalonica seemed to persist through to this time when Paul wrote these letters. And so Paul's letter is one of encouragement to brothers and sisters that are suffering in that, in that ecclesia, in a time of great prosperity, in a time where they lived in a, a very prominent place, and yet brothers and sisters were suffering at the hands of non-believers. And so Paul's encouragement is to wait on the return of the Lord. His encouragement is to watch as we sang together in our hymn in preparation for our exhortation. His encouragement was to wait for the return 
of the Lord Jesus Christ, to endure those sufferings. In fact, what a blessing we have that Paul wrote these words because in 1 Thessalonians, in this letter that Paul first wrote to the Ecclesia, we have details concerning the return of our Lord Jesus Christ that are spelled out very clearly that we don't see in other places. Turn with me, please, to 1 Thessalonians 4, and we'll read together verses 16 to 18. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, we believe that speaking of a cloud of witnesses, to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And back in verse 15, we're told that those which are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord will not prevent or supersede or precede them which are asleep. And so it's a a small detail, but we understand then from this letter that Paul wrote to the brothers and sisters at Thessalonica that the resurrection will first happen, and then those that are alive and remain at the time of our Lord's return, well, they'll join together with those that are resurrected. Again, a small detail, but it adds to that vision that we have so clearly painted for us in the scriptures of what will happen when our Lord Jesus Christ returns to establish God's kingdom. The context of these words in 1 Thessalonians 4 is that there are those that had died. There are those that had fallen asleep. We see that back at verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. It may be they had died of old age, or it may be that the persecution that Paul has previously mentioned twice in this epistle resulted even in the death of believers, of brothers and sisters. They stood up for what they believed and were put to death. We've not been promised, brothers and sisters, that we will be spared suffering in this life. In fact, not only have we not been promised that we will be spared suffering, we won't be spared suffering, we've been promised that we will suffer as we wait for our Lord's return. Peter says, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. And so we were called to a life of trial. We were called, brothers and sisters, to a life of suffering for standing up for the truth. We were told that when we stand up for the truth, persecution will come upon us from those outside and even on occasion from those within the ecclesia. We know how hard it is to go through those trials of life. And so we may ask, well, why? Why is it that we have to suffer before our Lord returns? Well, Paul tells us it's because the Lord loves those that he chastens. 
As a father loves a child and so disciplines the child, so our God who loves us disciplines us or chastens us that we might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we read in the scriptures and know from personal experience, brothers and sisters, that trial develops character, spiritual character, and it develops a dependence upon our Heavenly Father. It intensifies, does it not, our desire for the kingdom of God to be established, which is why Paul wrote this letter to the Ecclesia, to remind them of the vision that was set before them and us. And so Paul exhorts them twice in in 1 Thessalonians to comfort each other with words concerning the establishment of the kingdom of God. We see it at 1 Thessalonians 4 in verse 18. Wherefore, Paul says, comfort one another with these words. And he says it again in verse 11 of chapter 5. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another even as also ye do. And so we're commanded by Paul, not just as he exhorting us, brothers and sisters, to be encouraged because the kingdom of God is going to come, the end of all suffering and all trial and all temptation, but he encourages us to exhort one another, to comfort one another with this message of hope. Well, we indeed suffer don't we, in this life, brothers and sisters? We have loved ones who fall asleep. We have family members and friends who leave the truth. We suffer restructuring or reorganization within companies and lose jobs. We at times get sick. And those sufferings are difficult But we see that people in the world around us also suffer. What's the difference between those that suffer outside and those that suffer in the ecclesia? For those in the ecclesia, for those of us that believe, for those of us that know that the kingdom of God is coming, those experiences, our experiences, brothers and sisters, draw us closer to our God. And we know that when we suffer, don't we? We know that when we suffer, we draw closer to our God. Our trials, however, were not the same trials as the brothers and sisters experienced at Thessalonica. This and many other ecclesias in the first century had very hard persecution that came upon them so that they were afraid of their very lives So that when Paul wrote to the Ecclesia at Corinth, he exhorted them, well, if they're not married yet, don't marry. Don't have children. Because it's going to be a time of great distress. And it's one thing to be concerned for your own life. But very different is it to be concerned for the lives of your loved ones. And so they had a unique type of suffering. But we also suffer, not just with those trials that I already mentioned, but we suffer because of a moral persecution, brothers and sisters, that weighs so heavily upon the ecclesia. And not the ecclesia 
in and of itself, but upon every single individual member, whether baptized or unbaptized. And so turn with me to Revelation 16 and verse 15, a well-known passage where our Lord Jesus Christ exhorts us, exhorts those that would be alive in the day that he would return to establish his kingdom upon the earth. So at Revelation verse 16, verse 15, he says, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And we know that those garments are a covering, a covering for sin, a covering for sin that we put on when we come out of the waters of baptism. And now we're given forgiveness of sins. We know that because back in the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, they realized that they were uncovered. They had shame. They were exposed. And they tried to cover themselves and, and God didn't accept their covering. God provided a covering for their sins. And so a garment or a covering becomes symbolic for receiving the forgiveness of sins. So how do we lose our garments? Well, the scriptures tell us in chapters like Hebrews 10 that we lose our garments by turning our back on our Lord, by losing our faith in God's ability to forgive our sins, by losing our faith in God's ability to fulfill the promises that he has made, that he will establish a kingdom upon this earth. That's how, brothers and sisters, we lose our garments. And what's the way that we can prevent that? What are we told by our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, we can watch. And what are we told by Paul? Not just to watch, but to comfort one another, to encourage one another. You know, earlier in Revelation, in Revelation 6, John saw a vision of souls under an altar that were slain for the word of God. That time period was around A.D. 300. And that was what the Ecclesia went through from this letter that's written around A.D. 50 from Paul to the Ecclesia at Thessalonica. For about 250 years, the persecution was physical and it was intense, brothers and sisters. But don't think that our persecution is any less intense in our day. We have an ecclesia at the beginning of Revelation, an ecclesia at Laodicea, that lived in a time or a place where there was affluence and there wasn't physical persecution. And as a result, the ecclesia experienced apathy. Apathy for the truth. They were afraid to speak clearly what they believed. They were afraid to stand up and to make it known what they believed and what they stood for and, and what it meant to be a brother of Christ. And we know, don't we, brothers and sisters, that that's our trial. That's our suffering. Turn with me, please, to our Lord's words in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. where Jesus tells us 
what the trial of our day will be when he compares our day to the day of Noah and to the day of Lot. And so we read at Luke 17, verse 26. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the days of the Son of Man. Well, what were the days of Noah like? We know what they were like for Noah. Well, Noah was a preacher of righteousness for a hundred years. That's what Peter calls him. He was a preacher of righteousness. So did he stand up for the truth? Absolutely. Was he apathetic to the truth? Absolutely not. Was he put to death like they would have been in Thessalonica and in Corinth and in so many other ecclesias in the first century? No, he wasn't. For over a hundred years, he preached the coming day of the Lord as the ecclesia around him slipped away. There was such a massive exodus from the ecclesia, brothers and sisters, in Noah's day. In a day when every person just lived for the day. And so it says in verse 27, it doesn't tell us about the violence. It doesn't tell us about the wicked imaginations of their heart. It says they ate, they drank, they married, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. They lived for the day instead of living for God. We're told back in Genesis that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair. And so what was out in the world was more attractive than what God was offering in the ecclesia. And so there were eight souls that were saved. There was such a massive exodus from the truth in the days of Noah. Now what about the days of Lot? We read on in verse 28. Likewise also as it was in the days of Lot. And again it doesn't tell us about the awful immorality that was there in that day. Again it emphasizes that they lived for the day. They did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. We saw that this morning, didn't we? On the way to meeting, wherever we came from in the city. We saw people out planting, perhaps building, buying and selling, out shopping for the day. This is the world we live in. And what happened to Lot, brothers and sisters? Did the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah put Lot and his family to death for standing up for the truth? Well, by no means. Was he saying something about the immorality? Perhaps we're told again in the New Testament that it vexed Lot's righteous soul daily as he saw what was going on around him. But what we know happened is that there was a massive exodus from the ecclesia. You know, Abraham, it reveals in Genesis chapter 14, had about 318 Trained men. So men in 20 to say 50. Able to go out to battle. There were 318. So now if you assume that many of those had wives and children. We could estimate that the size of Abraham's household was somewhere between 800 and 1200 people. 
It was so big that Lot and Abraham, when they were out with their sheep and their cattle in the hills, that they kept butting heads with each other. And so Lot also had a large family. We don't know how large. Was it 500, 600, 300? We know it was large because it was too big for him to dwell with Abraham. And when Abraham, a little while later, stands on the brink of a hill looking over the valley of Jordan, looking down at Sodom and Gomorrah, he starts to plead with God that God would save the ecclesia there, the city, if there were 50 righteous people. And in the end, brothers and sisters, three came out of that city and lived. Three. Eight and three. So what is the suffering of our day? What's the trial of our day? Is it any less intense brothers and sisters and young people than the trial they faced in the first century by no means ecclesias in the past were decimated that went through the same trials and so what are we told to do well our Lord exhorts us to keep our garments on, to watch, to watch for the signs around us. Let's stay the course, brothers and sisters and young people. Let's heed the warning of our Lord Jesus Christ and watch. Let's observe what's going on in the world around us as things are heating up in the Middle East once again with the U.S. sending ships in preparation to fight Iran, perhaps. Let us watch what's going on with the Gogian Confederacy as it starts to build out and as Putin is in the news day after day. Let us watch what's going on in the Middle East. Let us watch the immorality in high places throughout the world. And let's encourage one another Let us encourage one another. Though we don't go through physical persecution, though we don't fear death because of what we believe, we suffer intense moral persecution in our day. And the world has turned everything upside down. It calls that which is abominable to God good. And it says if we stand up for the truth and declare it to be wrong, That's evil. That's the world that we live in. And so Paul exhorts us back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Reading at verse 1. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. Is that not true for us, brothers and sisters and young people? Do we need to be reminded that the return of our Lord Jesus Christ is at the doorstep? No, we don't need to be reminded. We know the return of our Lord is imminent. For yourselves know perfectly, Paul says, that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. And yet not a thief for us, he says at verse 4, 
But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. And what is the antidote antidote of that persecution? Watch and be sober. And not only so, but as we saw at 4 verse 18, comfort one another with these words. And as we see in chapter 5 and verse 11, comfort yourselves together and edify one another even as you also do. You know, sometimes, brothers and sisters, because of the busyness of our lives, we begrudge coming to ecclesial activities. Or even worse, perhaps we just stopped coming to many or even all ecclesial activities. But if the antidote to the intense trial that we're enduring is to comfort one another, we can't do that unless we're together, brothers and sisters. And so we don't just schedule different activities within the Ecclesia to fill up different nights and weekends. We schedule those activities so that we can obey the commandment, we can follow the antidote to the suffering that we're enduring, so that we can comfort one another with the hope of the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's take these opportunities as much as we are able, brothers and sisters, whenever we can to be together, that we might encourage one another as we wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ and the establishment of the kingdom. We are not the children of darkness, the darkness that is pervasive in the world around us. We are children of light. Brothers and sisters, we're children of light. And let us be happy that we're children of light and let us stand proud that we're children of light. Not proud in a fleshly way, proud that we're on the side of our God and his son. Acknowledging a dark world that we live in. In verse 8, Paul says, let us who are of the day be sober putting on the breastplate of faith and love and foreign helmet, the hope of salvation. What language is he using in verse 8? He's using the language of arming oneself for battle. And so Paul's telling us we need to look at this suffering, at this trial that we're enduring as being a battle, a war that's being waged against us, and we need to arm ourselves with faith and love and the hope of salvation. That's what will get us through this trial. And how beautiful, brothers and sisters, is verses 9 and 10. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, God looks down upon us. He sees us suffering in this dark world. He sees us in our trials. 
He sees us in our temptations, brothers and sisters. And he sees us sometimes succeeding and sometimes failing. Sometimes tripping so badly that if it were an actual trip, our our nose would be broken and our face would be bloodied. He sees all of that. And yet, he has not appointed us to wrath. In fact, it says... In another place, that while we were sinners, God gave his son for us. It doesn't say, brothers and sisters, that when we triumphed over temptation, it doesn't say that when we rose above suffering, that's when God gave his son. No, it says, when you were ungodly, when you were without strength, When you were sinners, Christ died for us. And not only so, but the prophet Isaiah reveals that it actually pleased the Lord to put Jesus to death. How could it please God to put his only begotten son to death? Because of what it would accomplish for you and for me. And for centuries of believers that have preceded us, brothers and sisters. And so back at verse 9, God hath not appointed us to wrath. He's not a vengeful God looking to extract judgment when we strive to overcome the fierce trial that exists in the world today. Then God looks down upon us in mercy and kindness. And he wants us to know that he's appointed us to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. And so we look forward to a judgment seat, brothers and sisters, where a God of mercy will have his son sitting on a throne and will see our Lord Jesus Christ face to face. With our own eyes, we'll see him. He who was made like his brethren, he who was tempted in all points like us, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest, And so, brothers and sisters, let us comfort one another with these words. Let us continually remind ourselves what the darkness is and what light is. Let us continue to come together as often as we can to encourage one another in our most precious hope. Because in the not too distant future, brothers and sisters and young people, there will be a shout, the voice of the archangel, a sounding of the trumpet, and those loved ones who have died in hope of the resurrection will come forth from the graves. A faithful man proclaimed almost 4,000 years ago, my Redeemer shall stand in the latter day upon the earth And though worms destroy my body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. I'll see him myself, said Job. My eyes 
shall behold my Redeemer. Not another eye set of eyes to tell me about it, but I'll see him myself. And so the eyes of those that have died in faith will behold the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And our eyes, brothers and sisters, will behold the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's not a day of wrath unless we choose to go the way many did in the days of Noah and the days of Lot. It will be a day, brothers and sisters, to obtain salvation. And then we will be joined together with our loved ones of old and the saints of old. And so shall we always be with the Lord.